Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia with Middle East Forum Century Radio. It's been an exciting week where we've seen many different proxy wars starting to play out in the Middle East. And yesterday, President Trump's second veto issued against a congressional resolution condemning U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen. To give you a little bit of a background on where this resolution came from, we'll talk about Iran, the United States, and their different proxy interests in the Middle East, including Yemen, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and in Egypt. But beyond that, there's a second proxy war which is already brewing in Libya, where we see over 75% of the country's territory now being ruled by a warlord, a warlord albeit an anti-Islamist war, war, warlord who is fighting against the UN-recognized government in Tripoli. So let's go back about 10 years to first understand how the United States started getting involved in different proxy conflicts outside of its original Middle East involvement in Afghanistan and in Iraq. First and foremost, we found that after the U.S. entered into direct kinetic conflict in Iraq in 2003, it did not invite Iranian aggression against it until 2006 and 2007 with the Sunni awakening, which was essentially an effort to start going back against Sunni Islamist groups in Iraq sponsored by the United States. This fundamental shift in the way in which Iran saw its role in the region was seeing American troops attacked mainly by Shia domestic militias in Iraq. For instance, Muqtad al-Sadr and his Mehdi army, which now is the largest parliamentary bloc in the Iraqi parliament. So it shows you that from 2004 and 2005, when the U.S. was fighting Shia militants, these individuals, 15 years later, are now serving in Iraqi democracy. But the main sponsors of the Shia militias in Iraq was Iran. And if anyone remembers the terminology of EFP, Explosive Force Penetrator. This was the number one weapon being used against coalition forces in Baghdad and Karbala, in Erbil, in Kirkuk, and other main American-occupied Iraqi principalities, governates, and cities, where we found that the source of the ammunition was Iran, but the individuals carrying out the attacks on the ground were Shia Iraqis. Parallel to this, going back to what we said beforehand, the Sunni awakening was an effort to end any Sunni domestic strife against America's occupying forces by organizing Sunni elders, tribes, and families in the Anbar province, which was in the west of Iraq, which had been the source of al-Qaeda in Iraq, a man named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was leading al-Qaeda in Iraq at that time, after he was taken out by a 500-pound bomb when the Americans were finally able to locate him. America's principal enemy before the rise of ISIS, Daesh, if we want to call it that, was Shia militias. So if we look at Iraq as a blueprint for the way in which the Iranians get involved in proxy conflict, we could go all the way back to 1981 and 1982, when the Iranians, two years after their Islamic revolution in Tehran, started to sponsor their own proxy groups in Lebanon, with Hezbollah as the prime example. But the war in Yemen right now where it might be cast as a civil war between the Houthi forces, which are in the northwest of the country, and the Sunni forces, which are along the coast, the southern coast, is not only a domestic conflict. On one side, you have the Houthis, who are a derivative of Shia Islam, 
that are being sponsored by Iran. Most of the weapons that the Houthis use are imported from Iran and their proxies. That means that the missiles that are falling on Riyadh, on Saudi Air Force bases in the south of their country, that are being used to target American allied shipping along the straits in the sea of, of the, the Gulf of Aden and also in the Red Sea are being fired by Houthis, but essentially it's a Houthi firing an Iranian missile. Beyond that, the Iranians are also trying to apply pressure through their proxies all along the borders of their main enemies in the Middle East. So you have the Iranians backing the Yemenis. You have the Iranians backing Iraqi Shia militia. You have the Iranians backing Qatar, which is the easternmost agitator to Saudi Arabia. And you even have them backing Shia minority groups in Saudi Arabia against the main Saudi interest in Riyadh in the east of their country. So when we talk about Yemen, we're not talking about U.S. involvement in a war, which is two sides of a civil war. It's the U.S. protecting its interests by backing its ally in the capital of the country, in Sana'a, against an Iranian proxy group. So when the U.S. Congress votes to remove U.S. troops and U.S. support for its allies, its proxies, if you will, the UAE, the Yemeni government, and Saudi Arabia forces there, what they're saying is the U.S. should abrogate its support for fighting against Iran or an Iranian proxy in this case in the region. This is dangerous for three reasons. The first, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. Wherever the Iranians pop up their head or their support through their overseas arm of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps called the Al-Quds Corps, led by a man named Qasem Soleimani, the U.S. must intervene. Because as heavy and as mitigating the sanctions that the United States government puts on Iran, with the latest sanction only being invoked yesterday or being implemented yesterday based on a decree from President Trump last week to label the entirety of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terror organization now put on the State Department FTO, Foreign Terror Organization designation list. That means that wherever this group is present, in this case in Yemen, we must be there to fight it and to stamp it out. Because sanctions are only as effective to do two things. One, to close off Iran's economic opportunities, especially those that are part of its nuclear program and its leadership. And two, to ensure that these sanctions go beyond Iran's borders into the realm of economic difficulty for their proxies overseas. So if the IRGC is supporting a civil war against an American ally or an agitator in a civil war against an American ally, then it is imperative for the U.S. to meet them head on. The second reason why the U.S. must remain in Yemen and must remain the course and stay steadfast is because we cannot have bellwether alliances with our friends in the region. The second that Congress votes against U.S. involvement in Yemen, they are voting against U.S. alliances in the rest of the region. If the Saudis and the Emiratis can't rely on American support in Yemen, what will the Egyptians think or the Israelis? Dare I not say the Turks to a certain extent, who right now are on their way out of NATO's orbit and into the arms of Russia and China. 
the reason why Congress voted for this, or their given reason for voting for this, was to bring an end to the war in Yemen. This assumes that the Houthis are negotiating with good faith with their enemies, the Sunni Yemenis, who they are fighting. And they're negotiating in good faith with the Saudis and the Emiratis. So long as the Houthis will not lay down their arms against their opponents in this civil war, translating to i.e. inter aliyah, the Iranians will no longer sponsor violent militia terrorist groups in Yemen. The U.S. has an op- opportunity to not just stamp out Iran's presence there, but to stand fast with their allies. The second the U.S. removes support, the value of American alliances in the Middle East deteriorates. And the third, and I think most important reason to put a line in the sand in Yemen isn't just because of Americans' trustworthiness. It's not just because of our commitment to stopping the Iranian expansionism across the rest of the Middle East, but it's also an opportunity to turn the tide of Shia extremism in the region. Because whatever comes out of Yemen, if there is a Houthi victory, they will not stop there. We have economic interests. We have energy interests. We have shipping and maritime interests across that narrow strait between Somalia and Djibouti and the coast of Yemen. And our interests here at home will be hurt. It's not just about what we're doing over there. It's how what we do over there and the way in which we do it affects our interests here. If you want to see higher gas prices, if you want to see more terror attacks against more American allies in the region, and if you want to see our ability to be flexible in the way in which we respond to global threats, in this case, Iran, you stay the course in Yemen. And that's why I think Trump's veto was the right move. Shame on Congress for voting for us to withdraw from this war. Next, we'll talk on some more subjects. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day. The men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio Philadelphia. 
There right now is a changing of the guard in some Arab embassies and diplomatic missions in Washington, D.C., with the latest arrival being the new Saudi envoy to Washington, Princess Rima bint Bandar bin Sultan, replacing Khaled bin Salman, one of the sons of King Salman and the brother of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS or Mohammed bin Salman, and with the arrival of Princess Bandar, or Princess Rima, we find that she is actually returning to Washington, D.C., since she is the daughter of a former Saudi ambassador to Washington and to the United States, Prince Bandar bin Sultan, who served from 1985 until 2005, later going on to lead the Saudi National Security Council to be a minister of intelligence, and now serving as a senior advisor to the king. The effort to place Saudi's first woman ambassador in Washington is part of an overall makeover effort that they've had to lead since the assassination and killing of Jamal Khashoggi in a, Turk- in a Saudi consulate in Istanbul back in October of last year. Now, the American-Saudi relations should not be dependent just on one egregious killing that took place in a diplomatic mission overseas, but I think this is a long-awaited effort by the Saudis to start improving their image in Washington. Quoting from the Arab Weekly from March 3, 2009, Princess Rima bin Bandar bin Sultan has been appointed Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United States, assigning her to lead arguably Riyadh's most important diplomatic mission and making history by her becoming the kingdom's first female ambassador. Princess Rima wrote, I will work with God's permission to serve my country, its leaders, and all its children, and I will spare no effort to that end. A little bit of background on the princess. During her father's 1983 to 2005 posting in Washington, Princess Dreamer received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Museum Studies from George Washington University in 1999. Before starting her career in public service, Princess Dreamer was a successful entrepreneur, philanthropist, and well-known advocate for women's rights. In 2011, as CEO of Alpha International, which owns the kingdom's branch of Harvey Nichols, Princess Dreamer broke what was then a social taboo by hiring women in the kingdom's retail sector. She also provided travel accommodations for a daycare center for working mothers. Now, it's good, I think, to have a diplomat with uh, not just private sector experience, but someone who understands the game in Washington, D.C. This isn't a case of an Arab prince or an emir or a sheikh coming to Washington to represent their country's interests. But I think for the first time in a long time, arguably since her father was in Washington, that a consummate Saudi diplomat will be representing their country's interests in the region. And she'll have many, many issues to tackle while she's here. The first and foremost, which is to repair the image of Saudi Arabia after the killing of Khashoggi. Beyond that, she also has to negotiate the potential American involvement in the initial public offering of Aramco, the Saudi oil company, or the Arab-American oil company, as it's called, that was started in the 50s and the 60s. And beyond that, She'll also have to represent Saudi Arabia's interests in the fight against Iran, in its involvement in Yemen, and even its broaching of closer relations with Israel, the Jewish state in the Middle East. Right now, at a time of tumult, she will have a very heavy lift in being able to represent her country's interests in Washington. Moving beyond Saudi Arabia, we also see that there's a lot of news coming out today that we'll get to at the bottom of the hour with our discussion on Algeria with a fellow from Beirut who I believe is joining us. But beyond that, we also should be speaking about two issues we visited last week, Turkey and Egypt. Turkey expects the Trump administration to grant it waivers from U.S. sanctions related to its purchase of Iranian oil and the Russians' S-400 missile system, Ibrahim Kalin, 
a top aide to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said on Tuesday, according to Fox Business. These penalties were reimposed in November after President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the landmark 2015 Iran nuclear deal. The waiver expires early next month. Kalin said Erdogan and other Turkish officials have been pressing Trump to use a presidential exemption to spare Turkey from sanctions under legislation known as the Countering America's Advisories Through Sanctions Act, which is aimed in part at Russia's defense industry. The exemption allows Trump to bypass the mandated sanctions should he determine it is in the U.S. national security interest to do so. So let's ask that question. Should Turkey be given a free pass to be able to purchase weapon systems that are not of NATO origin from Russia? And should it be continued to allow to receive Iranian oil across its border with that country? On the first issue of purchasing Russian arms, the reason why NATO's alliance works is because of the synergy of its defense systems beyond just the political and military cooperation that is the bedrock of the alliance. The F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Program, which is now arguably the most advanced fifth-generation fighter in the NATO arsenal, beyond just the U.S.-owned F-22 Raptor, was built on the premise that some 18 countries would be involved in its production. Engines being made in Greece, navigation systems in Italy, the helmet being made in Israel, not part of NATO but still a NATO partner, the United Kingdom, France, Holland, Denmark, all having their own unique role in the fighter jets production. This is not 100% American made. It is a NATO aircraft designed to counter NATO's enemies. So now you have the S-400 anti-aircraft missile system, which is not just designed to take out some 40 targets hundreds of miles away at one time, but also designed to take out NATO weapon systems. It's not like the Russians designed designed this with the interests of combating Japan or China or Iran for that matter. It was designed specifically to counter NATO's air power advantage over the Russian Air Force. So I could not think of a better way for the Russians to get target practice than to import a weapon system into a NATO member country to then use that weapon system to track the vulnerabilities of the F-35 fighter jet to then determine the best way to take it down. The F-35 was designed to counter Russian anti-aircraft systems. Russian anti-aircraft systems are designed to take out NATO fighters. You put the two of them together, and Russia is given a qualitative military edge over a weapons program that has cost hundreds of billions of dollars of not just American taxpayers' money, but also other NATO countries which contributed to the project. If the U.S., waives the sanctions which currently prevent it from shipping these f-35 fighter jets to turkey it is losing its competitive advantage against the russian military and more so any country which is then receiving russian military exports so if we hope to continue our missions over syria and syria obtains the same weapon system that turkey is going to get that means we're losing our competitive advantage the same with iran iraq and other Russian military customers, military export customers. So the second that we find ourselves in a position where we are losing our competitive advantage, that puts American lives at risk. There is no reason President Trump should continue with these exports to Turkey 
just for the sole reason, and there are many, many other reasons which we can get into, of threatening the future of America's superiority, air superiority, not just in the region where it's being sold or over the skies of Europe, but on a global level. Now, in terms of the Turks expecting a sanctions waiver to allow them to import Iranian oil, we have gotten to the phase right now where the screws are turning on Iran and its economy. We already mentioned the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps sanctions that came into place yesterday and its terror designation. We have seen Iran's economy begin to falter into the levels that have not been seen since the revolution took place there 40 years ago. The first round of sanctions brought Iran to the table to sign the malign, nefarious, no good, joint comprehensive plan of action, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal. But this second round of sanctions, which have now been re-implemented because President Trump found Iran not to begin compliance with the agreement that it signed in 2015, really has the opportunity to not just force Iran to suspend its nuclear program, but also to take a holistic view at all of Iran's malign behavior around the rest of the world. Whether it's illicit black market oil smuggling, the support of terror organizations overseas, demanding that they bring human rights and a little bit of just democracy to their country, that they stop interfering with other countries' affairs in the rest of the region, that they stop supporting the drug trade, human trafficking, their support for revolutionary movements, not just in the Middle East, but around the rest of the world, and that they stop sponsoring their own terror attacks, the latest of which were finally caught in Europe where Iranian agents were planning a bombing of a mass rally of the Iranian opposition in Paris. If the Turks and other countries like India, Japan, and South Korea are given a pass on the purchase of Iranian oil, that means the Iranian government, the theocrats and the mullahs in Qom and Tehran, those who are perpetrating massacres against their own people, those who are supporting genocidal movements around the rest of the world, still have a lifeline to be able to support their economy. Iran even announced last week that it was opening up trade offices in Ankara, in Istanbul, in Beirut, in Baghdad, and other Middle Eastern countries, with the explicit purpose of getting around American sanctions. So for the reasons of maintaining America's qualitative military edge in the region and beyond that for the reason of being able to have Iran cornered and not being able to maneuver and to have the sanctions actually achieve their purpose without inviting the U.S. to have a military response to Iran's nefarious re uh, behavior in the region, these sanctions must stay on. But there's an even greater reason beyond combating just Russia and Turkey, excuse me, Russia and Iran. Turkey must be made to be held account and to decide, are they with the West? Will they go back to the Turkey of yore, back before 1999 with Recep Tayyip Erdogan's ascent to power, where he became prime minister of that country in November of 2002, but it really goes back to 99 when we saw his rise to political power. Will they rejoin the family of Western liberal nations that they took part of after that revolution against communist forces in 1947? Will they continue their traditional role? Maybe it's not so traditional anymore because we've had two decades where they've been on an Islamist bent. 
but to perhaps embrace the Turkish people's will that took place in municipal elections a month ago, where they voted for the Liberal Party. That vote was one against Islamism. They kicked out of power members of Erdogan's party in the three largest Turkish cities, Izmir, Ankara, and Istanbul. And now Erdogan is trying to find a way to blame mafias and foreign forces for influencing their democratic process. The only individual who failed in this election was Erdogan himself, who made it a referendum on his power, not just on his party's position in local municipalities. But back to the point at hand. The U.S. should keep these sanctions on Turkey. And Turkey needs to decide, are they with Iran and Russia, or will they come back to their traditional NATO allies? That's the question I would put to the president of that country. More after these messages. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. For the first time in the last 26 weeks since we began broadcast, we are actually joined on Facebook Live, where our listeners can watch us and we can also be uh, communicated with, whether it's by way of a comment or you can call in at 1-888-329-3306. That's toll free across the United States and overseas. 1-888-329-3306. If you have any questions about the Middle East Forum, our programs, the content that you hear on this program, or you just want to talk about the Middle East and have a little bit of a riff, maybe you agree, disagree, or have something to improve the conversation. We said that we would get to Egypt. Now with a report from the BBC. Egypt's parliament has approved constitutional amendments that will allow President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to stay in power until 2030. CC is due to stand down in 2022 when his second four-year term ends. One of the results of the revision of Egypt's new constitution that came out of this Muslim Brotherhood jockeying for power with secular forces in that country was imposing term limits on the president of Egypt. But the amendments, which must be put to referendum within 30 days, 
would lengthen his current term to six years and allow him to stand for one more. So he would stay in power until 2024 and then be able to stand for re-election to serve until 2030. They would also give Sisi more power over the judiciary and further enshrine the military's role in politics. Specifically, Article 200 would be changed to say that as well as protecting the country and preserving its security, the duty of the military is to preserve the Constitution and democracy, maintain the basic pillars of the state and its civilian nature, and uphold the gains of the people and the rights and freedoms of individuals. Another amendment to Article 234 would meanwhile enshrine the role of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, or SCAF, in approving the Minister of Defense's appointment. Now, many of us saw what happened when the United States tried to impose democracy on the Middle East in 2001, 2002, and 2003. The U.S. invaded Afghanistan and put in a puppet government. The same thing took place in Iraq. 18 years later, we're still in Afghanistan. 17 years later, we are still in Iraq. So the effort for the United States to go on a democracy expansion campaign in countries, and I don't want to say that are not ready for it, but have not necessarily or traditionally accepted this as the modicum of imposition of Western liberal values into their realms might face a backlash. Now, I'm not saying that I think extending CC's term is something that is the right thing to do with a human rights paradigm. But if we're talking real politique here, the United States needs reliable allies in the Middle East. CC has proven to be one, but there's two issues that I have with his recent decisions beyond this that we'll get into in just a second. Beyond the fact that CC has to maintain his grip on power, he's trying to ensure that we uh, are not getting to a certain position. That looks pretty good. <laughs> We're trying to get to a certain position that CC needs to be cudgeled to not revert to the military supremacy that his former president, two presidents ago, Hosni Mubarak, had imposed over the rest of the country. He's got economic doldrums he has to worry about. He has an IMF bill out that he has to be able to pay for. He had an expansion of the Suez Canal that's not really going that well. The price of wheat. Egypt used to be the breadbasket of the entire Middle East. Now they have to import over 80% of their grain supply to feed the Egyptian people. So I see two moves in what CC is doing right now. The first is he's trying to maintain his grip on power. Like almost every single Egyptian president, whether it was Nasser, whether it was Sadat, Mubarak, Morsi was probably the failed one, or now Sisi, by having his traditional allies in the military secure his control, at least for the foreseeable future into the next generation. The second thing that he's trying to do is to pass these measures now while Egypt is not teetering at the brink of starvation or famine but it has many strategic interests that the military needs to support. For instance, if the Egyptian military were to be compared to a national industrial complex or to a bi-purpose military, their job is not just to defend Egypt, but they all have economic responsibilities as well. You have Egyptian companies and regiments and battalions and brigades that serve two purposes. One is defense. The second is economic output. You have military-owned baby formula factories. They produce diapers. They're involved in the running of farms throughout the south of the country. And beyond that, you also have the Egyptian military that takes over for critical national infrastructure jobs like loading on and offloading ships coming and going from the Suez Canal 
during times that the Egyptian labor movement, specifically unions, go on strike. So by combining Egypt's constitution and its power structure, this triad that it's put in place between the president, the head of the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, and the Minister of Defense, they're solidifying their role. I don't want to say in perpetuity, but definitely for the long haul and being able to control that country. Now, Egypt made a decision last week that I have a major, major, major issue with. About two years ago, coming next month, a new Arab multilateral military alliance was beginning under the auspices of request that President Trump had made to King Salman of Saudi Arabia in May of 2017. This was called the Middle East Cooperative Security Organization, or equivalent to an Arab NATO. Its founding partners included most of the Gulf Arab countries except for Qatar, which has found itself on the way out, and Egypt. Egypt made a declaration yesterday, not yesterday, but last week, that they will no longer participate in this Arab version of NATO. The Middle East's largest army, or at least the Arab League's largest army, will not take their fair share in participating in a multilateral alliance meant to protect Arab interests in the region. This severely weakens the Arabs on two fronts, not just on having joint operability concerns or, 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 or abilities, but also in what I think we're coming to, the climax of the Arab or intra-Arab-Iranian battle, which is taking place all throughout the Middle East. The overthrow of the president in Algeria, the overthrow of the president in Sudan, and now the Egyptian withdrawal from this alliance does not portend well for the eventual facing east when the Arabs will have to take on Iran. Now, I don't know if we're going to get to the point where there's direct military kinetic conflict between Iranian armed forces and Sunni armed forces that are part of this alliance. But the ability for the Arabs to deter the Iranians is weakened when the Egyptians pulled out of this multilateral alliance. Now, to make it clear, the Egyptians did have some legitimate reasons for no longer taking part in exercises with this group. The first, there has only been the semblance of a joint military command set up in, in, in Saudi Arabia to direct these new armed forces. Second, the competence and the logistics structure meant to be able to have this alliance work as a regional entity is weak. And third, there has not been any financial commitments on behalf of the governments that could underwrite the operations of this joint force like were promised two years ago. But rather than having the Egyptians pull out, I think they could have invited the United States and some Europeans in to help mend fences and to make this regional entity work. Rather than just pull out of these uh, talks to create this joint force, they could have sought negotiations to bolster the alliance and to fix the cracks rather than to just watch it fall apart when they stay safe on the other side of the core of Middle Eastern countries. More on Sudan and Algeria after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. 
Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We had a very interesting article that was published by the president of our organization, the Middle East Forum, Dr. Daniel Pipes, on Tuesday, April 9th, right on the edge of the Israeli election. It did not have to do with the election itself, but it did have to do with President Donald Trump's future peace plan that Daniel tries to analyze and give some new information on in terms of its formation and what we as Americans, and more specifically, what the Israelis and Palestinians can expect in the genesis of a two-year process to find Middle East peace, or at least introduce a plan that can bring Middle East peace. And to discuss this, again, as a reminder, feel free to call in at 1-888-329-3306, 1-888-329-3306. I'd like to hear what you think will be the formulation of Donald Trump's peace process, and if you think it's going to work, or if you think it's going to fail. But first, to go into the background of Daniel's peace. He writes, President Trump's peace plan for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict surfaced two years ago, and to this day, remarkably, only he and a handful of aides know its precise details. Daniel is speaking about Jason Greenblatt, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, David Friedman, and one other individual. Only four people in all of Washington, D.C. and America's diplomatic corps know the true contents of this peace plan. Even President Trump has not been given a complete copy to review and only the major headline arguments of why this will work. So they certainly have done a good job of being able to keep the lid on what will be in this plan. But still, as Daniel writes, a stream of leaks, however, contains enough internal consistency that their coalition, supplemented by conversations with administration officials, provides a plausible outline of the plan's contents. Now, Here's what Daniel writes. The leaks suggest the plan boils down to a grand exchange. The Arab states recognize Israel and Israel recognizes Palestine, both with capital cities in Jerusalem. The approach builds on elements forwarded by Presidents uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in 2016, the Obama administration in 2009, the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative, and even Daniel's 1990 Symmetry Plan for Middle East Peace. So the grand bargain here is, is that the Arab states will recognize Israel first, and then after a series of negotiations and concessions from the Palestinians, Israel would recognize a so-called state of Palestine. But as Daniel points out in the article, 
there is a myriad of ways on why this will not work out. First of all, there's nothing to guarantee the Palestinians will even come to the table. Second, the Israeli government and Israeli people may not be ready for another peace process. Third, there's no guarantee that the Arab states will recognize Israel. And fourth, if you are negotiating with the Palestinians, you have three separate parties that have to come to the same table. And if you reach an agreement with one, you may still be at war with the other two. What I'm speaking about is Hamas, Fatah, and the Palestinian diaspora in Syria and Lebanon, which have their own governance structure. So good luck to President Trump, but I don't necessarily see this peace process taking off, but rather sinking before it's even launched. Now we're being joined by the director of Islamist Watch, Sam Westrop, out of Boston, with some breaking news on the latest of anti-Semitic Islamist incidents coming from the great state of Minnesota. Sam, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, you were uh, doing research yesterday where you found yourself coming across a social media post by a uh, official of the Council on American Islamic Relations Minnesota chapter who's responsible for government relations in that state where he said, and then we have to watch our language on this broadcast, but can you give us the gist of what he said? Yes, of, 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 of course. This was uh, written uh, 10 years ago. Uh, I, as you say, the language is problematic, but essentially it's uh, uh, to hell with the Jews. Uh, I wish Hitler had killed more. Uh, I uh, hope we could increase the casualty count. Uh, they deserve it. That, that is a paraphrasing summary of what he said. Now imagine a lot more profanity. And, and you can uh, just think that this is the individual who was supposed to be representing the interests of Minnesota's Muslims in their state government. And even more so, at the federal level, he has a direct connection to the CARE National Office in Washington, D.C., correct? Well, well, yes, he, he, he calls himself the Government Affairs Coordinator for CARE Minnesota. Now, uh, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, has branches all over the country, and its Minnesota branch is one of its most active, and certainly it's extremely active in the Minnesota State House. Now, the reason we were looking into this guy, the reason we're looking into the extremism uh, of, of CARE Minnesota, is that this is part of a larger story on the intense activity of radical Islamists in Minnesota right now, not just CARE, but uh, other groups as well, who are, have a, enjoy a cozy relationship uh, with uh, the governor, with uh, various politicians at the uh, state level, uh, and despite their extreme anti-Semitism, their extreme bigotries, they have achieved political credibility and power. Um, and this, anti this virulently anti-Semitic care official is just one example of a much broader problem. So, Sam, it's not just Ilhan Omar, it's not just Keith Ellison, it's not just care. But I want to dig into something. I, I had an exchange yesterday with an official from the um, Jewish community of Minnesota where he took me to task for criticizing them for not responding more verbosely or, 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 in, a, or in a louder manner for tackling this organization that is having its government affairs led by an anti-Semite. Now, now, he may be able to discuss that in a fair and, and uh, balanced manner when it's coming to Keith Ellison and Ilhan Omar, a state official and a federal official who both have been accused of making anti-Semitic statements in the past and having affiliations with anti-Semitic organizations. But what should 
organizations in Minnesota be doing? Not just the call care out for this official statement. So he did make it 10 years ago. It doesn't make it any less damaging. But what are they doing now, and what would you like them to do to be able to hold these individuals to account? Well, first off, let's not uh, uh, pretend this is, is uh, old bigotries in the folly of youth. Um, there are uh, many examples we've come across of current Islamists in Minnesota, some of whom have been nominated by them in, in a bill currently before the Minnesota Assembly. They have been nominated to, to lead, to join uh, a task force on anti-Semitism. Anti-Semites have been nominated to help combat anti-Semitism. The uh, Muslim American Society who uh, in Minnesota, who openly supports violent jihadist groups and makes similarly uh, virulently anti-Semitic remarks. The problem is widespread, and these these extremists are close to political power. The response needs to be overwhelming. If if there was ever a time to take a stand now against the infiltration of extremists into American society, into local American government, it is right now in Minnesota. Uh, Jewish organizations, other faith organizations, moderate Muslims must speak out. Now in Minnesota, there is actually a history of Muslims trying to fight this Islamist menace. Uh, Somali Muslims in Minnesota have been calling out the extremism, uh, extremism of, the, of the Islamist-led community organizations in Minnesota for, for the last two decades, and they have been sidelined and ignored. Uh, there is an urgent need from these moderate Muslims for allies, and what the Jewish community especially should be doing right now is reaching out to them and saying, we will take a stand with you against these extremists. We won't accept them or tolerate them as supposed representatives of ordinary Muslims, but we would declare them to be extreme and unrepresentative of moderate uh, society, and we would take a stand and stop them from acquiring power in the state house and credibility in the media. Uh, uh, This has to be done. This has to be done. And and by the way, I've seen this before uh, in Britain, in in the United Kingdom, where I worked on many similar issues for many years. I saw faith groups, especially Jewish community groups, say, we don't want to tackle this issue publicly because it will cause too much infighting, too much uh, 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 discord between religious communities. The Jewish community in Britain now thoroughly regrets that approach, thoroughly regrets, because what they've seen by staying quiet is extremists flourish, extremist activity flourish, extremist influence flourish. Uh, In Minnesota, we have to do something. Across the U.S., we have to do something. Uh, the answer is not to stay quiet and hope it goes away. So, Sam, there was an article that was published in the Huffington Post of the UK version that was talking about Minnesota's current political calamities, where they said that it was wrong to criticize Ilhan Omar and to call her an Islamist because she was not trying to change American politics through a soft cultural penetration of what the traditional Islamist ideology dictates when they get involved in Western liberal democratic systems. Would you consider Omar to be an Islamist? And if so, what definition are you using and how do you ascribe that to her? Mm, there is a, a, a fine line between someone who facilitates extremism and someone who is an extremist. And there's a fine line, therefore, between someone who facilitates Islamism and is an Islamist. Uh, I, I, we regard here at Islamist Watch, we, we regard uh, an Islamist as someone who wants to impose theocratic beliefs upon American society. Um, This may take the form of Sharia law, it may take the form of extreme hardline religious views, Uh, it it may be setting up 
uh, Islamic schools that teach uh, extremist teachings, it may be putting legislation forward that would uh, excuse some sort of theocratic influence in, in, in legislation. So there's, there's a, a, a wide array of examples of what makes an Islamist, but ultimately at the heart of it, it's about imposing religious ideas, uh, politi political religious ideas. Uh, Ilan Omar uh, is friends with Islamists. She takes money from Islamists. She enjoys the support of the very anti-Semites we previously mentioned and meet, has invited them to meet with her in, in D.C. Uh, she has uh, refused to condemn uh, uh, hardline Islamists uh, in the past. All of this suggests to me that she is an Islamist. Um, uh, and if not, she is certainly someone who is willing to tolerate and support and allow Islamism to flourish. And uh, it, as it's a fine line, I really therefore don't see too much of a difference between the, uh, the, the person who, who advocates for, say, Sharia law and the person who gives someone else the opportunity and the political credibility and power to advocate for Sharia law. Um, so there is no doubt that Ilan Omar poses a threat. And now it's possible Ilan Omar is just naive. She doesn't understand the extremism of the organizations we, what we, she's working with. We have taken a lot of information to her office. A lot of other people have taken a lot of information to her office. We've seen, seen no real sign that she is prepared to reject the extremism uh, of Islamist ideology in the same way that she, she claims to oppose, uh, say, right-wing extremism or, or other more, more trendy, more modish, more popular uh, extremisms. Um, we need to see change from Ilan Omar, and until we see that, uh, we're going to assume she is part of the problem. So you have Islamists, you have their fellow travelers, they're uh, useful idiots, as, as we've called them in the past. Or uh, what was the other word that you would use in a report you put out two years ago? It was um, the useful infidels that associate themselves with Islamists. But I want to get beyond this binary conversation on these officials, whether they're making anti-Semitic remarks, whether they're actually friends of the Jewish people in the United States. Can we talk about the threat that Islamism poses to core fundamental democratic values in this country? Can you give me at least two or three examples that go beyond the anti-Semitism conversation? For me, it's very important. You know, this is what has been dominating the headlines since her inauguration and her swearing in in January and some other officials like Rashida Tlaib. You have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez now calling for a dramatic cut, a drastic cut to American assistance to Israel. But let's get beyond the conversation on anti-Semitism. What other things are these politicians who have been elected to serve in federal or state office doing to undermine America, not just some of America's minorities? Well, there's, there's, two, there's two aspects here. On the one hand, there is the agenda, the, the overtly Islamist agenda pushed by the Islamists themselves, both those in office and those who support or have influence over, uh, over people in public office. But then there's also the question of the Islamist alliance with the uh, progressive movement, the, the illiberal progressive movement. Uh, and we've seen this particularly strongly with Ilan Omar and uh, Rashida Tlaib and uh, several other uh, candidates to local and state office around the country, this curious fusing of theocrats with hard-left activists. Um, uh, neither, uh, uh, obviously, are, are particularly moderate, but at the heart of it, their ideology should clash. <laughs> and, yet, and yet they found a way to make it work. 
And Islamist Watch has argued very recently that actually this now poses the greatest threat, that these theo-progressives, these Islamists who have adopted progressivist language and rhetoric, now pose a much more dangerous threat to American society than, say, the Wahhabis or the Muslim Brotherhood ever did. Uh, so this is, this is an area of key concern, and we see that those threats to American freedoms, to constitutional freedoms, um, through the encroaching progressivist uh, agenda supported by Islamism found in, in both federal and, and local governments and, and assemblies uh, uh, all around the country. But then there also is the question, of, as, as, as I think you, you originally uh, uh, hearkened to, of, the, uh, of actual Islamist ideas. Um, I mean, as in pure Islamist ideas, uh, working their way into American politics. And I think that the best example we've seen of that has been the rush uh, in, in, amid the horrors of things like New Zealand and the furor over people like Ilan Omar, the rush to push legislation through local government that seeks to define Islamophobia not as... as uh, uh, hatred or violence against Muslims, but as criticism of Islam, criticism of, of Islamism. And we're seeing attempts to do that all across the country. And if ever there was a, a threat to the right to criticize a political or religious ideology, it is right now in the, in the fear and confusion over both Islamist extremism and far-right extremism, uh, uh, I can see all too easily local governments uh, enforcing strict Islamophobia uh, uh, laws uh, that punish uh, not just uh, people who are genuinely anti-Muslim or unpleasant towards Muslims, but those who rightly criticize Islam or Islamism. I mentioned Minnesota before. I mentioned the Somali activists who had protested the extremists who had taken over their community, including groups like, like CARE. Now, CARE is busy pushing these new Islamophobia rules all around the country. And yet, just 10 years ago, they demanded that those Somali activists in Minnesota, those moderate Somali activists in Minnesota, be barred from a public event, referring to them as anti-Muslim. Well, these Somalis are Muslim. And this, 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 <laughs> this, is is a, this is a trend. And we've seen organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center call observant Muslims anti-Muslim. They now have a tendency to start peddling right. in conspiracy theories that Muslim-majority countries like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt are actively supporting anti-Islam, what they call anti-Islamic organizations in the United States. But this is where I think they're going to get caught. They're going to call the wrong person. And in this case that you were talking about these two Somali activists in Minnesota, I remember hearing another moderate Muslim activist, Zuhdi Jasser, being described as an Uncle Tom. They're using racist language to describe. And, and, and that, that hurts, as, as I think, as an American that understands the legacy of civil rights. They're trying to, on one hand, shut organizations that are making a, I think, valiant effort to to affirm and 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 define what it means to be in a muslim in america today versus what it means to be an islamist that's acting against america today versus those who are just trying to politicize speech and and if there's anything in this country that we understand if you take your political correctness too far if you start handing out organizations it's almost like or, or accusations it's almost like care is engaging in mccarthyite tactics to try to shut up lawful and legitimate opposition to the negative and nefarious actions that they're taking against democratic institutions and organizations that are trying to preserve american values 
I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, is a particularly good example of that, as, as you, you just mentioned. Not only have they, uh, do they go after uh, genuine anti-Islamist activists, but they go after people like Majid Nawaz, a, a leading, prominent, moderate, reformist Muslim fighting extremism in this community. They referred to him as, as, as part of a, a dangerous anti-Muslim movement. Now, he sued, and, and, and the SPLC uh, uh, settled uh, admitted fault and settled. Um, yeah, uh, but that, that so three, four million dollar settlement is just a uh, you know hair off the top of their head of a four hundred, five hundred million dollar endowment they have, <laughs> including some which is right. being held in overseas bank accounts. Maybe that's one of the reasons why their two top executives were removed recently. Right, and, and look, I think one of the reasons the SPLC settled was not just that they could afford it. You're right, they can but also because they realize actually at the heart of it how incredibly wrong they are on this issue. But they've decided it's better to push this Islamist line that only Islamists represent Islam and not moderate Muslims, uh, because that looks better in the progressive eyes. Uh, so if, the, if, the, payout, if the, the trade-off for that is paying a few million dollars to someone every now and again, uh, I think they're willing to do it. There needs to be a bigger uproar from you us know, Notably, I, I, did, I did read this today, and we only have about a minute left, but Twitter has ended their partnership with the SPLC. So perhaps there's some hope for uh, Silicon Valley tech companies that they'll start you know, a, a counterattack or at least putting organizations like SPLC in their place. Maybe CARE is next. you got about 15 seconds to offer final thoughts. Uh, I really hope so. Silicon Valley has worked with the wrong people for far too long. If they start to wake up and stop censoring anti-Islamist messaging, uh, that would be an enormous boost to moderate Muslims and anti-Islamist activists everywhere. Thank you, Sam Westrop, for joining us. Hopefully we'll be able to talk to you on later in the month or uh, maybe even next week. So we've got about 30 seconds here before we end the program. I want to thank our communications assistant, Delaney Janchik, our production director, Lisa Barbunas, and all of our listeners for being able to join us today on Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. This is Greg Roman wishing you all a happy, peace, uh, happy Easter, an easy fast if you're celebrating Passover, and we'll be here next week on this radio station. Have a great week. 